We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Please join me in taking your Bibles and turning again to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in two verses of Scripture this morning, verses 18 and 19, as we continue our series together on the supremacy and the sufficiency of our Christ. And so over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be in what could be titled a sub-series of Colossians. As we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3, specifically, we're going to be talking about God's plan for the family. That God has a plan for families and that it is supposed to look like a specific way. And so this morning, as you get ready for this, know that over the next couple of weeks, today we're going to be talking about husbands and wives, and next week we're going to be talking about children and parents. And so as we unfold this over the next few weeks, we'll prayer what kind of hope for you is that as you look into this, you will think about what kind of child am I? And maybe even as we delve into this this morning, you may be saying, well, what am I? What kind of child am I? I I'm I'm 15 years old. What does this have anything to do with me? Brother Larry, I think, I think we as a culture, and this, this has absolutely nothing to do with my life, I think we actively have an understanding of what biblical marriage is supposed to be. We need to understand collectively, have an understanding what it is that we long for, what it is that we plan. We need to understand what it is that we hope for, what it is that we long for, what it is that we plan for. And maybe it is that you're looking at me and it is that we long for 25 that we plan for. And maybe it is that you're looking at me and you're saying, I've been married 25 years. I've been married 50 years. I think we've got it figured out. The couples that I know that love the Lord and each other the most are the couples that will look at you and say, we've still got a long way to go, right? And so we're going to delve into this together. And so I want to just start off by asking a real simple question. How is your marriage? How are you doing? If you were to evaluate it, what would you say if you as a husband were to evaluate it and you as a wife were to evaluate it? Do you think that your evaluations would match up? Did you, do you think that both of you would agree on your strong points and that both of you would agree on your weak points? I think it's safe to say that in talking about marriage that it is absolutely the hardest and greatest thing you will ever enter into. It is comes with the greatest challenges in the world it comes with some of the greatest difficulties but it also brings some of the greatest joys but we fight something inside the church that culture is absolutely affecting the way that we view marriage it affects the way that we view family because most of us have grown up uh, with a lot of challenges because we've seen things romantic movies and comedies and television and entertainment and most of you if I ask you I said do you think that affects the way that you view marriage? Do you think that that affects it the way you view family? The majority of people will say, no, absolutely not. I know that's fiction. I know that has nothing to do with reality. But research shows just the opposite, that over the course of a lifetime, the amount of entertainment that we take in, the amount of books we read or movies that we watch, uh, shows that we take in, it deeply affects the way we think marriage is supposed to be. But yet we know that that is not reality. 
And so we're trying to figure out in the real world with real people who are serving a real God, what is it that we are hoping to accomplish by bringing glory and honor, by having a biblical marriage and one that submits to the authority of Christ alone? Now, when we open up to the book of Colossians, you'll remember that we've transitioned into the practical side of the letter, the second half of the letter, where Paul talks a lot about the expectation of the new man in every area of life. Well, if we are to be transformed, born again, redeemed, if we're supposed to be new creatures in Christ, nowhere should that be more evident than inside the home. Nowhere should it make a bigger difference than with our spouses and with our children. Nowhere should there be a greater mission field than inside the home. If we are missing that, then no matter what we do anywhere else, we have refused to put first things first. And so Paul gets back to the basics with Colossians and helps them to understand that the most important institution in the world is the family. Now, some people would think that I would say the church. But I want you to remember that the family was instituted before the church was ever instituted. In fact, there is no church without the institution of family. That family from the very beginning was where God wanted to work first and foremost inside the area of people's lives. It's the most important institution in the world. And as a church, we ought to know that we cannot transform society if our homes have not first been transformed. So what we're going to talk about today, I, I want to give you a little bit of a warning, is radically different than what the world will tell you. It is radically different than the cultural accepted norm for what marriages ought to look like. It is radically different, and we need to understand that if this ever needed to be understood, if it ever needed to be studied if it ever needed to be obeyed it's right now and why is that because satan is has a full-on attack on the family satan's greatest desire i believe his greatest scheme in this age is to destroy the family because if he destroys the family he destroys society he destroys the church it all starts in the family so we are getting back we hear about grassroots efforts we're getting back to the very roots of where Christianity is going to form and going to blossom and going to grow. And we're going to see this morning our big idea that Christian homes must follow God's plan for a healthy, lasting marriage. Let's discover how that happens by standing and reading God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Lord, teach us today these two simple sentences. Lord, they contain so much. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it would look like to have godly homes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you be seated? I'll go ahead and give you both points this morning because you've got two points that are flowing out of this big idea. And if you have read those two verses of Scripture, you probably already could name those two points without me having to put them on the screen or say them for you. But the first is this, number one, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands. Can you guess point two? Number two, husbands, love your wives. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Some people come to church and they say, sometimes the preacher gets so complicated. Today is not that. Right? Those are simple, directly from the text of Scripture. So what we want to do this morning is start with number one and explore what it means for a wife to submit to their husband. This may be one of the most hotly contested sentences that you could say out of the entire New Testament. This is a sentence that is hated by liberals. It's hated by humanists. It's hated by secularists. It's hated by even some of those in the church who have become liberal and leaning and in their understanding of how we understand biblical roles. There are those that argue that they are what is called egalitarian, meaning that everybody is exactly the same. And then there's those that are what are called complementarian, which I believe absolutely that the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that we are equal at the cross. We are saved equally under God. Our salvation by the blood of Jesus as a man and a woman is absolutely no different. But we have differing and complementary roles. There are things that are men are designed to do, and there are things that women are designed to do. That is very unpopular in today's day and age. Sexually, biologically, you are different. You were born different. Before you were ever out of your mother's womb, it was defined for you whether you would be male or whether you would be female. If you were male, that means that you have certain absolute biological traits that you cannot have if you are female and vice versa. That is one of the simplest statements I have ever made from a pulpit, and yet I find it strange that I feel the need to tell you that. We live in a world in which we believe that everything is fluid, that gender is fluid, that you can be whatever you want to be. No, you cannot. You cannot be anything you want to be. If you were born a boy, you were a boy. If you were born a girl, you were a girl. Women have babies. Boys do not have babies. I, and I'm not trying to be silly. I, I'm not trying to be goofy with this. It, we're getting back to the basics that when he said he created them and he created them male and female. If you are a male, you ought to praise God that he gave you the ability to be a male. And if you are a woman, praise God. That was God's design for you as well. And we need to understand that there are roles for men. There are roles for women. And praise God that he created an order within the family and in society. And I am so thankful thankful that God in his masterful design made two distinct separate sexes so there's that but then we get to this word submit 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 and you can't help it even if you're a godly woman in the culture in which we live because you were inundated just like I talked about with the romantic comedies and the shows of what we think love is and what we think marriage is, when we see this word, we recoil from it a little bit. And we almost want the preacher to explain it away a little bit. We kind of want it pushed to the side a little bit. Would you just soften that? Because that's bound to be like old English. What does the word submit really mean? I, I want you to just listen today. If you're taking notes, I want you to take notes because I want to clear it up for you. In fact, lean in close. The word submit, it means submit. There's, there's not a better 
English word to help us understand in our under, uh, of what is being said here. Now, if you say, well, it seems like, Larry, you're just taking this one passage. It's here. It's in Ephesians 5. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. It's in 1 Timothy 2. And it's in Titus 2. And by the way, it's also in Genesis 1 and 2. So going all the way back to creation, our understanding of biblical roles is very, very important. But you, if, you, if, if you're bristling at this before we even get started, I want you to know that there's even a parallel in the Godhead. Think with me. Let's go a little deep for just a moment. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Are the Father and the Son co-equally God? Yes or no? Yes. Does the Son submit to the Father? Absolutely. Even inside the Godhead, we have an understanding of what this is. This doesn't mean that you're second class. This doesn't mean that you're lower on the totem pole of salvation. It doesn't mean that you are loved any differently by God, saved any differently by God, or does it mean that your role is less important? It means that there is an order to the way that families are to be structured, and you see right now the results of a culture living without any form of order or any form of hierarchy. It shouldn't be that we have to press this point very long because if we back out from it, I want you to understand. First of all, ladies, this is, not, this is to Christian homes. This is not saying that as a woman, you are to submit to every man. This is you are to submit to who? Your husband. This is a mutual possessiveness. Now, we hate that word too. I scratched that one out of my notes twice before I said, no, I'm using it possessiveness did I use that word yes and here's why I can say that because my wife is my wife she's not your wife she's my wife and I am her husband I belong to her and she belongs to me and because of the fact that God gave her to me and I'm proud of her and I love her I'm proud that she is my wife but I'm also very proud that I am her husband so when we think about what we're talking about, we're talking about the relationship between married people. This is not about women and men in totality. This is about the Christian home. So, so that's number one. But number two, this is not about servility or inferiority. The worst man in the world will listen to this sermon and go home and say, you better do what, what I said because Brother Larry said you're supposed to submit. You ought to get slapped. Number one, because you're dumb. You're just dumb. Good old-fashioned dumb. It's not about servility. It's about an attitude of an understanding that there has to be headship, that there has to be leadership in a home. Um, this surprises a lot of people when I say what I'm about to say. But there are many times throughout a pastorate that I will get a question, especially from a Christian woman, and they will be asking about what I think they should do, like whether it's with a job or whether it's something going on in their family or a decision they have to make. And I always listen attentively, but always, always, if they are married, I always ask this question, especially if I know their husband to be a saved individual. I'll say this, well, what does your husband think about that? And you will be surprised how often I'll hear, well, I hadn't really run that by him. 
Here's where the pressure is off for some of you ladies. I'm not telling you that your husband is always right, because goodness knows he is not. But here's the real issue. If you want your man to lead your home, then let him lead your home. And if he's wrong, the pressure's not on you, the pressure's on him. He is the one that is to prayerfully think through, and as we understand this is the way that our marriages are supposed to go, we come and understand this is about a mutual respect. But ladies, this is also not an absolute command. Now, follow me on this. What is the difference? When I say it's not an absolute command, when would it be okay, ladies, not to submit to your husbands? Anybody know? There are times when you absolutely should not submit. Do you know when? If he ever asks you to violate a command of God that is explicitly commanded in Scripture, you have a higher allegiance to your God than you do to your husband. But if, if what he is asking is not something that is strictly prohibitive in Scripture, we have a guide here. We have a guide. The issue of submission comes to first asking ourselves, especially women, if I am submitted to Christ, then is it, should it be so difficult to submit to my husband? But we ask ourselves the question, why is this so hard? Why is it hard? That's answered in the third chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Do you want to know where problems came about? Do you want to know why it feels like men are from Mars and women are from Venus? Do you want to know why marriage is hard? Do you want to know why it's a struggle? It's answered in Genesis 3.16. Watch this. This is after the fall. God says this, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. That word desire means it will be the woman's desire to have dominion or to rule over their husband. And then it says, and he will rule over you. What was the result of the fall? Feminism and chauvinism. Feminism being that the woman would want to usurp her role in that she was to be the helpmate because that's what she was created to do. And chauvinism that he would try to dominate the woman. Almost every problem that we see that fleshes out in marriages over time results from these two curses that came because sin entered not only women but men and then the result of that comes in how we see it fleshing out in marriages. So wives are to submit to your husbands, but husbands, you were hoping I'd run out of time, but I still got a little. Number two, husbands, love your wives. Isn't that simple? Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I want to say something as I told you that their babies that are born are born male or female. You were assigned certain gender roles at birth. We need to be in the church fed up with the war on masculinity. For 40 years, there's been a war on men. The feminization of men is staggering. The absolute all-out assault on a man being a man and living like a man and being proud to be a man has been absolutely assaulted from the very core of what it is. And it's killing our society.
Because what we have is this group of gender-neutral acting strange... Trying to keep this... But because this assault on masculinity has taken place, now what we see is that men are acting just like they are told that they should act. That they are acting in ways in which they've been told they're sorry, they've been told they can't do it, they've been told that they can't handle it, they've been told that they are unworthy. And so now we have a generation of men that what we find out is, is they are scared to be a man. It's one of the reasons you see that now, that, that there was a time 60 years ago when you were 17 or 18 years old, you were expected to be a man. That's been pushed back now. We have 27-year-old kids who all they want to do is play video games all of the time and live their lives like total losers because they've never stepped up to the plate and realized that headship is what you're called to, that you're called to be a man, that you're called to lead, that you're called to fight, that you're called to be a person who steps in the gap, someone who is worth looking up to. And part of what it means to love a woman is to lead a woman and to be a head of your household. You can't be the head of your household because you aren't running anything. You are acting like a child. So part of what men need to hear, Christian men, grow up, take some responsibility, lead well, work hard, love hard, be all in and believe with all of your heart that God designed you to be a man and that because of that, he has given you certain qualities and abilities and you have what it takes. Love your wives. Headship is not about domination. It's the manifestation of consuming love. It is that you gave of yourself to, to get your wife and a, and a loving and godly man never forces submission. That's not love. It says When it says love your wives, that is a verb of continuous action, meaning it's not that you loved her. It is that you loved her, you are loving her, and that you keep on loving her. It's the, the, the old story of the man who said, well, I told you I loved you when we got married. Nothing's changed. It's not a past tense action. It's continual. And if you are a man and you say, I, I'm, I'm struggling in my marriage. My woman don't act right. Anybody ever heard that? She just, I, she just, she just, try something for me. Love her radically and passionately i'm not promising you that things will get better but i can almost guarantee it you will see a major change if you act like the man god called you to be you will be blown away at what it looks like when the woman that god has blessed you with what how the favor is returned it says that not only are we to love them but it says don't be harsh that simply means Show kindness. Don't be ill-tempered. Don't fly off the handle all of the time. Don't intentionally irritate your wives. I, I'd never heard the term until a couple of years ago, but, but it seems like the term gaslighting now. We, everybody uses that all, of the, all the time. Everybody's being gaslit. Everybody's being gaslit. If you're married, you gaslight each other. You don't have to debate it. Why? Because if you've been married longer than six minutes, you know what buttons to push. 
How many of you know right now, if you wanted to have a blowout fight this afternoon, that when you got in the car, there's a subject you could bring up today, and y'all would lose it on each other. But some of you are so dumb, you bring it up anyway. That's just dumb. And there are things that you need to, to let go. And, and you don't need to constantly be pushing the issue. You know, I, I really believe that, that, that most men, we've become so distracted. And that's dangerous for a man. It's dangerous for anyone, but it's really dangerous for men. Because I've seen women, y'all can multitask pretty well. We cannot. Y'all can talk on the phone, put on your makeup, drive, do all kind of things. A man, here's a man, like football games were on yesterday. If you've ever tried to have a conversation with your man while he was watching a sporting event and you think he listened to you, you are wrong because we can't multitask. And so when men get distracted, we're in trouble. And so what we need to do is bring the focus back and remember what it was like to intentionally pursue your wife. I, I, I'm reminded of the story. I, I love the story in Genesis. It's, a, it's a, just an incredible story about Jacob and Rachel. You remember Jacob? He goes to his uncle's house, which is kind of weird anyway because he fell in love with his first cousin, but it, th that's for another day. So he goes to his uncle's house and he falls in love. And you remember this story? And he falls in love with Rachel and he says, she's gorgeous. I got to have her. So he goes and talks to his uncle and he's like, hey, I want to marry my cousin. And he's like, that's fine. That's weird too. And so they make this deal and he's like, yes, you can have her, but you got to work for me for seven years. You remember this story? He works for seven years you got to want a woman to work for seven years. Seven weeks, seven months, was seven years. And then I wish I understood the customs, but they march her down the aisle and must have had a thick veil because when they get her down the aisle, he didn't get the one he wanted. There was a pretty sister, and to put it in biblical terms, there was an ugly sister. And, and the ugly sister was named Leah. And it meant she was weak on the eyes. Some people say it meant weak-eyed. No, 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 no. It meant weak on the eyes. In other words, U-G-L-Y, she ain't have no alibi. She was ugly. <laughs> so he comes down and marries this woman. I can't, I, I don't understand all the customs, but somehow gets to the marriage night, lifts up the veil, and goes, ah! goes back he said you tricked me he said i'm gonna let you have the other one you just got to work another seven years 14 years and because i'm weird i'm wondering did leah even still look good 14 years later but he does it and he ends up with her and i'm thinking this guy forget the polygamy and forget marrying your cousin what i'm talking about here is that he was absolutely dedicated enough to say you know what this is worth it this is worth the pursuit this is worth the fight this is worth loving her for rise to the occasion now some men will say it's just so hard cry me a river that that's not a reason not to do something it seems like we also live in society when we have when we feminize men we also have a problem with men that don't want to rise to challenges and so I'm telling you, I agree with you that it's hard, but anything that's worth doing is hard. And we need to remember both as men and women that 
there's a law. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. And here's, here's the exact definition. Any closed system left to itself tends towards greater randomness. Now you're thinking, what does that have to do with marriage? Let me give you the layman's version. Things fall apart. Things fall apart. And if you don't work on them, your marriage is not going to get better. And here's how I know that. There is no magic marriage fairy. He's not coming to sprinkle dust on your marriage and you're not going to wake up and it be better. If you want it to be better, you both better be committed absolutely to it being better if you're going to make that happen. If you're going to have a good one, you're going to have to work at it. We ask God for help, and God does help us, but there are also things that we should all do. So I want to just, I've got a few minutes left with you. I want to give you some practical things that if you have a marriage in which the wife submits to the husband and the husband loves their wife, here are some things that absolutely ought to be happening. Now, some of these are going to seem so obvious that you're going to go, you need to remind people of that. I just had to remind you that you're boys and girls. So yes, I think this, we need to be reminded of this. Number one, number one, you ought to tell each other you love each other. I, I think sometimes that we don't do a good enough job of remembering that's a big deal. I like hearing it. I need to say it. People need to hear it. Say, I love you. Say it over and over and over again. Number two, physical affection. Physical affection. Now, I'm, we're going to take another step in just a moment, but right now, I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about, and men probably need to hear this maybe even more than women, physical affection when sex is not on the table. A willingness to hug, to put your arm around, to hold hands. Physical affection is huge. But we need to understand as well, sex is also a big part of marriage. Now, anytime you say that word in church, people go, but, but let's just be real. Let's just be real. You're here because of sex. You are. And God made it. And we've let the world take ownership of it as if they're the ones that created it and own it. The Christian church has more ownership of it than anyone else in the world. So yes, another practical step, if you are physically able, you ought to have sex frequently. I didn't even get one amen from a dude on that. terrible try to help y'all out and y'all don't even talk back at all number four number four you ought to verbalize appreciation and admiration for each other you ought to remember to say thank you you ought to remember to compliment women most men are like dogs a little pat on the head and a little bit of encouragement and they'll do just about anything in the world that's just a little secret. But not forgetting to, to tell those things. Not forgetting, number five, to share your thoughts and your feelings, to, to talk through things, to, to really communicate, to talk and to share what's on your mind and on your heart. Number six, a little simple one, give gifts. 
I'm not talking about lavish gifts. I'm not talking about big, expensive gifts. There's a time and a place for those, too. I'm talking about just a willingness to say, hey, I was thinking about you today. I thought I picked you up a little something. Number seven, create some alone time together. Create some alone time together. Find a date, do a shared activity, take a walk. And believe me, I know, look, schedules are pressing. Kids got stuff going on all the time. That is not easy. I'm not, when I say that, that is not easy. I get it. Figure it out. Figure it out. Find a way to make that happen. Number eight, realize that love is willing to make another person happy and fulfilled. Let me say that a different way. It's not all about you, right? It's not all about you. It's, it's not all about your wants and your needs. Part of the reason so many marriages aren't doing as well as they ought to be is both people are so selfish. And that sounds like a terrible indictment, but if it's all about me, then I have forgotten the selfless act that God called me to. Number nine, and I mentioned this a little bit ago, but, but let's just say it again. Would you please quit fighting dirty? And I told you men need some reminders too. Women, y'all remember everything. Y'all like walking file cabinets. Like you'll bring up stuff that that you'd be fighting about something and all of a sudden you'll say, you remember in 1984 that summer we were on that trip and you said such and such and you're going, what? I'm not telling you not to fight. I'm telling you it'd help a lot of you out if you stayed with, with the actual subject at hand. In other words, yes, we are fighting or discussing or having a conflict or whatever word you want to use for that, but we're going to fight about this. We're not immediately going and rehashing every bit of history that we've ever had before. We're not going to the hot button item every single time. Number 10, and this is huge, 43% of marriages fight over what I'm about to tell you. 43%, that's a lot. Have a financial game plan. Folks fight about money, and if you don't agree on how you're going to budget and how you're going to spend and what's okay to go in debt for and what's not okay to go in debt for and how we're going to approach this and how much is okay to spend on this and what's not okay to spend on that, then you've got a marriage problem. I'm positive when I just said that. I hit a nerve with a lot of people because it doesn't matter whether somebody makes $500,000 a year or $50,000 a year. You're fighting over money that is not a poor person's problem. That's a people problem. Number 11, I love this one. Have realistic expectations. Have realistic expectations. When I say a realistic expectation, there are too many people that expect their wife or their husband to do for them what only God could do for them. We walk around trying to find, I'm just trying to find somebody to complete me. That person can't do that. A lot of people after the first year of marriage, that they, they're struggling because they thought that getting married was going to bring them this ultimate sense of satisfaction. That's too much pressure on another human being. If you find your completeness and your satisfaction in the Lord, you'll take a lot of pre pressure off the other person to be God when they were never meant to be God. A lot of marriages fall apart because you've made an idol out of your husband or you've made an idol out of your wife. So that's really, really simple, but it's absolutely important. Number 12, serve together. Serve together. In other words, 
do some things where you're serving other people. Church is a great place to do that. Show courtesy, number 13. Show courtesy, be kind. I heard someone say one time, this stuck in my mind. A wife looked at me, husband was sitting there, and she said, he would never speak to a gas station attendant the way he speaks to me. And I thought, you know, part of being married is at the least showing the same courtesy and kindness you would to a stranger to the person that shares your bed. Being kind in the way that we simply have manners and the way that we talk to each other. Number 14, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't quit. You're going to want to. Every marriage that I've ever known has gone through struggles and hiccups and problems and fights. Don't give up. And number 15, and if you are married and have kids, I want you to look at me and I want you to listen well. And if you are planning on getting married and ever planning on having kids, I want you to listen to me because I'm about to tell you something that is completely countercultural. This is number 15. It's not all about the kids. I've heard my whole, it's all about those kids. Well, then you got a bad marriage. I'm not telling you your kids shouldn't be important. Obviously, I love them more than life. But the problem in most marriages is, is that we've put the children and we've made idols out of those kids. We worship at the altar of our children. And who is sacrificed? The relationship with God and the relationship with the spouse is sacrificed. I thought about it the last flight I took. You know, the flight attendant comes out and bless her or his heart. Nobody ever pays any attention to them. They're talking about the exit rows and gas masks are going to fall from the ceiling and what do they all if any of you have ever listened what do they always tell you to do first with that mask put it on the other person first right no put it on yourself first and then put it on the other person because if you pass out you're no good to anyone so you put the mask on yourself first then you start becoming a hero right the problem with most marriages is, is that you're spending all of your time putting masks on your kids to try to get the oxygen to them, that your marriage is absolutely suffocating, and yet you feel like a hero because you say, well, it's all about those kids. Your kids ought to know that your husband and your wife are a greater priority than they are. They ought to know that. And if they know that, you will see amazing things as a result of that. So then we get back to a very simple question. I asked you earlier, how's your marriage? Let me ask you another really simple question. Why did you marry your spouse? Why? You ought to remember that and remind yourself of that daily. And then I want to ask you to do what I believe is the most important. Sometimes we save the best for last. Are you really genuinely, honestly praying for your spouse. By name, do you pray for your wife? By name, do you pray for your husband? Do you lift them up? I found that if you were to take everything else I said and throw it out the window, but you found couples that genuinely and honestly prayed for each other regularly, you would see a radical difference. But I would be remiss if I'm stop this morning without getting to what I believe maybe, not maybe, what is the main point of this passage. When Paul writes these two admonitions to wives and then to husbands, the greatest problem in every marriage 
the greatest problem is always, always that our relationship with the Lord is going to determine our relationships with other people. So often people want to have a wonderful marriage, but they haven't first set their relationship with God right. If you don't have your relationship with God right, that's the vertical relationship you have with the Lord, then none of the rest of the horizontal relationships in your life are ever going to be right. So yes, some of you need to make some things right with your husbands, and some of you need to make some things right with your wives. But I want to challenge you that before you ever try to do that, you make sure that you've made things right with the Lord, that you rededicate yourself to the Lord, rededicate yourself to your spouse, that you pray for your family, that Together, one of the things I want to brag on you for doing, none of us are knocking it out of the park because there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Nobody has one. You are fallen people and you live in a fallen world. It's never going to be perfect, but it can be wonderful. It can be fulfilling. It can be worthwhile. And I want to give you a huge compliment today. You're doing something right. You're here. And you know one of the greatest ways to build a healthy marriage is to put yourself under the authority of Christ in church, worshiping the Lord together, serving Him together, and getting on the same page. I'm not telling you that you coming to church today is going to fix every one of your marital problems, but I can promise you this, it's not going to hurt. 